Hey guys, Mike Verkess from the Second Shift Podcast here to talk to you about Piasse. Back in 1996, I had two certifications to manage, my state license and national registry. That was it. Fast forward 20 some years later and what I would give to have just two. Between my advanced certifications, ACLS, PALS, PHTLS, you name it, I'm looking at upwards of 10 certifications to manage. That's where Piasse saves my bacon. I simply add my certs, expiration dates, and bam, no more surprises. Take pictures front and back and share those credentials with whoever needs them. With the touch of a button, it's easy. Go to the App Store now for your device and search for Piace, P-I-A-C-E-T, Piace. Do it today. This is Second Shift. Well, hey, everybody. Mike Verkest joining you guys live. Thanks for jumping on with a special edition of a what was intended to be <laughs> an EMS Lighthouse Project podcast crossover with the Second Shift. But um, as you can tell by looking at your screen, we are conspicuously missing somebody, aren't we, Ratu? Jeff Jarvis, where are you? Yeah. I don't know. We, th- this whole thing is this this thing has been hilarious, as usual, and I, and I don't understand it. So that's okay. Technology. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, uh, Jarvis. I don't know. I'm assuming he's going to jump on. We'll keep an eye out for him here in a little bit. But I know that we all want to extend a special thank you guys for jumping on and joining us again for really what is sort of part two of the second shift episode 81 when we talked a lot about mrna vaccines we talked about like i don't know everything from the beginning right? right how these things were developed all that kind of stuff and what our intention is today and we'll get through this and then we'll, we'll do some introductions so you know who you're dealing with here uh, most of you guys know the long-haired guy um, and some of you might remember the other guy down in the bottom there, but really what we wanted to do today was just revisit. There's so much misinformation going on out there. And really it's our intention tonight for the next hour or two. I don't know how long it's going to take, but what we want to do is be able to answer questions for you and explain things um, as a trusted source, because I feel like that's kind of what we are. Uh, it's not CNN. It's not Fox News. There's no political side steps. This is just people that care about you, care about our community and our families, and we just want to have straight talk, right? That seem reasonable to you guys. So that's kind of what our plan is over the next couple hours. Again, Sands Jarvis with Jarvis. I don't know. It just depends how it's going to go. Um, but one of the things I wanted to do real quick was just do a quick introduction uh, because there might be some of you that are watching. Um, that maybe haven't tuned into us before. So just a little bit about us. I'll start. My name is Mike Verkest. I'm a fire-based EMS training officer and just all around EMS goob. And to be honest with you, tonight I'm just the eye candy because it's these other guys down here. And it's not the first time I've been called that, so I'm cool with it. It's totally fine. Um, but uh, I'm really here to kind of host the show, kind of keep things moving around a little bit because, again, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. So with that, I will send it over to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Ritu Sani. Say hello to the people. Good sir. Hello, people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> unfortunately, we're not on our usual broadcast platform either. So I'm wondering if we'll have uh, much viewership. But 
if you're listening to the podcast or watching on YouTube, that's great also. But uh, my name is Ritu Sani and uh, co-host of the Second Shift Podcast with my, my good friend, Mike Rakest. I am an EMS physician and an emergency physician. I'm medical director of two different counties here in, in the Portland, Oregon area. I'm out in the suburbs of Portland. I'm not in the main part. Uh, and I work clinically as an emergency physician also and uh, been co-host with Mike, uh, I don't know. A couple of weeks. Years. Yeah. And uh, it is not the first time that Mike has been called the eye candy. That is true. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but then, you know, it's great to have back, back on second shift, um, Dr. Hayden Smith. Uh, Good Dr. to be back. Yeah, you barely squeaked through your rotation last month in the emergency <laughs> department. Uh, I didn't get my evaluation turned in in time, so I guess they passed you. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, give us a little uh, info, background on Dr. Smith. Well, first off, I totally enjoyed working with you in the emergency department. That was, it was a lot of fun to see you in there, see you in your element. Um, yeah, so I am Dr. Hayden Smith, uh, um, a resident here in Portland at Providence Portland Medical Center. Uh, I was on this broadcast previously uh, talking about mRNA vaccines and with a lot of the information that's online, with a lot of the changes that's been going on uh, as far as um, you know, the science around the vaccine. I thought I'd come back on uh, and talk a little bit more about the, the science of the vaccine, what we now know, uh, and answer some questions. Well, isn't that perfect? Because that's exactly what we want to do. And yeah. one of the things that I have done over the last, I don't know, day or two. So for those of you that are regular second shift kind of watchers, you know that generally we don't put a lot of planning into what's going on, right? We're, we're pretty good at, like, we're just going to go with it. And however it goes, it goes. But this one we actually put a little thought into, right? Because we wanted to make sure that, you know, for this, I mean, we even got dressed up. Look at where two, he's in like a polo shirt. You don't ever see that. Flight bridge polo. I know. It's, it's pretty good. You guys are matching. I know. It's, oh, we do match. Yeah. Oh, that is the sweetest People thing. People so ever. often can confuse us for twins. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> constantly. Well, one of the things that we wanted to start off with was really going sort of back to basics, right? And and uh, Hayden, what we thought we could do was start off with you and talk us a little bit about what is a virus. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. And I, I just wanted to second uh, what Mike was saying that, you know, these guys have put a lot into trying to uh, answer your questions and and you know, understand the facts behind what is out there. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of good stuff that we want to talk about today. And so, you know, we're really excited to to you know talk about it and answer those questions. But we, we do want to get back to the basics to start out with and and talk about what is a virus because it, you know I think it's important to understand the basis of what is going on, kind of start from scratch, so that we can then kind of build and talk about some of the more um, nuanced topics with the mRNA vaccine and COVID and things like that. So, you know, simply speaking, a virus is a small particle, a small kind of molecule almost, very complex molecule made up of different proteins that is not really living, but what it does, because it can't replicate itself. And so what a vi virus has to do is it has to get inside of a cell 
in order to hijack some of the materials that are in the cell in order to replicate and grow. So a virus is just some particles of protein and some DNA or RNA. And there's different kinds of viruses that use both DNA and RNA. And when this viral particle gets inside of the cell, uh, it steals that machinery from the cell, uh, and then it uses that to replicate and create more and more particles until the cell gets so filled with particles that it essentially explodes, releasing all the particles out into the the you know into the serum, and then that those viral particles can then go and replicate in other cells. So it's just this kind of cascade of worsening infection as it starts in one cell, then you know thousands, then hundreds of thousands, and then millions of cells as this virus you know grows really fast and really rapidly. It makes it a really good infection, to be to be quite honest. And so, you know, we our body has ways of um, attacking that. It has ways of combating viruses. It's been doing it for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and so as we have evolved to combat viruses, our immune system attacks the viruses in two different ways. You have antibodies that go and recognize and attack specific viruses. And then you have a different kind of cellular immune response that goes and attacks the cells that are making the viruses. And so on one hand, your body can sequester or, you know, kind of stop the viruses with the antibodies, and then it marks it. And that's the important thing, is it marks it with the antibodies to then uh, go and attack, eat it, and get and destroy it. Now, another mark is put onto the cells that are making the viruses. And the body goes in and, it, and then essentially kills the cells that have the virus inside of it so that it can stop it at the source. And the body sees that as a benefit to just killing its cells that are infected because it has, you know, cells that can take the place. And, you know, if you don't do that, then the cell goes on, then the virus goes unchecked and just grows, you know, proliferates and infects other, other cells. So the virus, so that, that's kind of how your body reacts to viruses as you have this antibody immune response and this cell immune response. Um, so kind of moving on to COVID, COVID is a specific kind of virus. It's actually an RNA virus. So you have DNA and you have RNA. DNA is permanent. That's, you know, that's what we think of when we think of genetic material. RNA is like the temporary template that, um, you know, that your body uses to make proteins, but then it goes away really quickly. Uh, as a result, though, because COVID uses RNA, it means that it can get translated really quickly. And so that means that it can infect a lot of cells a lot quicker. It doesn't have to go through the step of DNA. So I've, I've often heard that people refer to the RNA as like a blueprint, right? Like these are the plans, right? Go forth and do your thing. Is that Yeah, accurate? exactly. Yeah, yeah that, that's very accurate. So it's like the blueprint that the cell then uses to create proteins. So then, yeah. well, yeah. I like the DNA is the blueprint, and like, like the RNA is like this, like a copy of the blueprint that you give. Like the plumber dude comes by, and he's like, "I need the plumbing blueprint," and you give him a, just that copy. So the R, so so the RNA is a copy of the protein that it's being made right now, 
and it goes out in the cell and makes just that protein. Yeah, you can think of the the DNA as kind of like the master plans, and the yeah. RNA is like a specific instruction. Okay. So, right. you know, here's your instructions. Go and do this, and then the DNA holds all of the information. And so, once your cell, once you once you have this RNA, uh, you can create the proteins, and the virus takes advantage of this. And SARS, SARS sorry, COVID um, is a coronavirus that has this RNA. That then invades into the cells and in, and it invades by using two proteins one is a viral protein and another is a human protein the viral protein you've heard all the time it's called spike protein and the spike protein uh, attaches itself into the ace 2 receptor on your cells so when that happens they connect and then the virus binds to your cell and then it gets the signal your your cell gets the signal to bring that viral particle into the body or sorry into the cell rather and then the rna that sorry the coronavirus then releases the rna to infect the cell and cause the damage we were talking about before and so the um so that's how it gets in and the that spike protein and the ace2 receptor are proteins that we'll probably talk about here uh, during the podcast which is why i bring them up um, and then another point, probably on the, and you know, I'll kind of leave it to the guys after, but I think one other point I want to make is, uh, kind of just a naming thing. So COVID is what we hear all the time, but that's the infection. That's the syndrome. You know, you think of like, you know, another name or another syndrome that's commonly used is like down syndrome. You know, it's a collection of symptoms that we then see and call COVID. The, pro, the, the actual virus is called SARS-CoV-2, and it's called a coronavirus. So those, they're two, actually two different things. We use them pretty interchangeably, but uh, that is the difference between those two names. Hmm. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so, but coronaviruses aren't new, right? I mean, they've, they've been around forever, right? Yeah, no, they're not new. Uh, they, there's a lot of different kinds of coronaviruses. Um, coronavirus gets its name for the, from the name crown. Corona means crown. Uh, and it's re directly referencing those spike proteins that are on, um, that are kind of around the viral pipe, the virus. And they've been around forever. They've been around for a long time. Uh, you know, SARS, the first SARS is an infection that was in that, was in China, uh, and then uh, MERS was uh, the first coronavirus that made, I believe it was the first, the first coronavirus that made kind of news and headlines. Yeah, the first SARS actually hit Toronto really hard. So that was, um, mm -hmm. for, for those of us who were around then and have a lot of EMS people, friends who work in Toronto, they, um, and that, Hayden, is an interesting piece of history because if you go back and read the Toronto experience with with SARS with the first SARS, yeah. It's like it's it's like this experience but shrunk down. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of similar issues around like the super spreader event. So mm -hmm. you know, the the original COVID, it was very contagious, but it really wasn't equally contagious. It was sort of like some people were really a lot more contagious, and other people weren't at all. And one of the super spreaders, I think, happened to be a paramedic. And at the time, they didn't when they so 
and actually went to different facilities is my my recollection. But there were a lot of the same challenges around like how much do we close down, how much that sort of thing. So uh, that and that was what early was I can't even remember SARS when that was to early two thousands. Um, so you know yeah. when was like six or something like that <laughs> or five. <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> So, I mean, let, let's jump forward a little bit. So let's just, for all intents and purposes, we'll just use January of 2020. There's this sure. new thing coming around. <clears throat> uh, you know, we're starting to see it. Wuhan, China, big deal. Uh, a lot of cases coming out of there. Then we start seeing the spread. And next thing you know, uh, sort of uh, SARS-CoV-2, what we see now, we start seeing people with COVID disease. Um, and then let's fast forward through um, 11 months-ish, right? And bring us to about December of 2020. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I'm using sort of air quotes there a little bit, we start hearing that there's been some vaccines that have been sort of being developed really since the summertime, maybe even a little bit sooner than that. And the question becomes, well, what what is this vaccine? What is this technology? What What is mRNA? And we start hearing all this stuff. Oh my gosh, it's so brand new and all that kind of stuff. And, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about what is an mRNA vaccine, such as the Pfizer and the Moderna specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and how, how do those work exactly? Yeah, great question. And it's one that I get, I get asked all the time, <laughs> like friends, family, they always ask me, you know, what, uh, what are these vaccines? What are these, what's this mRNA that they're talking about? So I will first start with, you know, the, the term mRNA. So mRNA is that those instructions I was talking about. When, you, when your body naturally creates proteins, it takes a DNA and turns that into RNA, an mRNA molecule, that then goes out of the nucleus uh, and then gets transcribed and makes proteins. So mRNA, it's called messenger RNA, and it's kind of the working, you know, the, the template that they use to make the proteins. So that's mRNA. The idea to put mRNA into a vaccine is not a new one. Uh, it actually uh, harkens back to, I believe, a, you know, a patent or, or the idea was goes back to 1980, 1989, I believe. Um, and uh, just for reference, uh, that was before I was born. Uh, and it was- I was in yeah. college. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so the, the idea behind this, you know, rudimentary mRNA vaccine back in the late, in, in the early nineties was to inject you know, just straight raw mRNA into the body to see if it creates an immune response. Because the thought is that if you can put this mRNA into the cells, then they can then create the protein and you can select what kind of proteins you create an immune response to. And so um, they, uh, they did that and it really didn't have any of effect. It actually uh, caused a ton of side effects and there was, and I think only one person ever zero, uh, ever created antibodies to this naked mRNA that was injected through these rudimentary mRNA vaccines. 
nothing really came of it. It wasn't until um, 1993 that they started working with uh, kind of protecting the mRNA in a in in what's called a lipid. It's called a micelle, um, but if you think of it like a like a fat envelope. So it's kind of you you put the mRNA inside of a little package. Dr. Jarvis refers to it as a tiny drop of butter. Yes. That is, yeah, that exactly. Is, Which, that is if, you, if he would have got himself logged on, he could have told us. He would have said, howdy, y'all. It's a tiny drop of butter. And it's a little drop of butter. It's a little exactly drop of butter. Exactly what it is. So they started putting this mRNA inside of the tiny drops of butter. And, uh, and that allowed them to get the mRNA into the cells. Uh, and it was, And then companies started popping up that started using this technology to make to really start to get serious about this research uh, and start making vaccines. And so that's where two companies that you've heard of a lot, Moderna and BioNTech Pfizer. And so, and I'll use um, Moderna and, and BioNTech because those are the two ones that actually produce the, the mRNA vaccine. Right. And so um, Moderna and BioNTech, they, they started doing this in cancer and infections in a lot of different areas to try and create this immune response. Uh, and that goes, harkens back clear to um, 2000, I believe it was 2008 was when BioNTech was made and 2010 was when Moderna was started. So this technology uh, is pretty old. Um, you know, if you're taking Moderna, for instance, that was you know 20, 10 years before the mRNA vaccine that we have today. And so we have lots of data from clinical trials, from uh, old studies uh, and things that go back to, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, the research goes back to, you know, 1990, 1989, 1990, when, you know, these first studies were being done. And so the thought that this is a new technology um, is, is not, doesn't hold too much water because we do have a lot of, a lot of data and a lot of, safety data with these vaccines. So I, I, I want to make sure that, like, I, I think we covered some really important things there. And I just want to make sure that, that like, let's, let's recap this last piece here. All right. Yeah, great. Um, and, and I just want to, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dumb guy and I just want to make sure I understand it. And I want to make sure that people that are watching that maybe don't have really a, a background in any kind of medical stuff at all. Uh, I just want to make sure that it's clear to them. So when you go and get, Pfizer, Moderna, well, mm -hmm. then again, we're just speaking specifically to these two. Um, and hello, Dr. Jarvis. Say it. Hello. Oh, no, no he, he didn't say it. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, well, we can hear you, but we were hoping you were going to say. Howdy, y'all. This is Dr. Yay! Jeff Jarvis. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Sorry. So, again, if you're new to kind of watching us, we have these little squirrel yeah. moments, so it's okay. I'm just glad to see him on here, but let's, let's recap. Uh, so I go in and get a vaccine. Essentially mm -hmm. what's happening is there is instructions in the little drops of butter mm -hmm. that get injected into my arm and that mm -hmm. goes to our cells and it tell, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just trying we'll to, I'm trying to keep it simple for myself. Um, and it goes to those cells and provides instructions to those cells via the MNRA, which is called messenger RNA. 
and it says, be on the lookout for these things, right? And then it creates. So this is where I just want to make sure that, that we're, we're getting it clear because yeah. a lot of people are thinking it messes with your DNA and all that stuff. It, it, it doesn't. It, no. It's simply providing your cells with instructions saying, this is the thing I want you to look out for. It's got these things on it. And, uh, and like, that's what you want to watch for. Is that sort of close? That's yeah, that's exactly close. right. So yeah. you, the, the vaccine essentially gets this mRNA into your cells. And then it, it's more of a tag than it is a uh, than it is than it is anything else. So it essentially tags your that cell and says, "Here, I have something new." And in the case of COVID, that spike protein, it says, "Here, I have something new. Can you mount an immune response to this? Because I don't like it. I want to get rid of it." And so that's the message that is encoded in the mRNA. Doesn't get anywhere near the nucleus, and I think that's um, an important point I want to make: is these mRNA vaccines, this mRNA, it's impossible for it to get into the nucleus. It, you know, it's kind of a one-way street out of the nucleus for mRNA, so it can't get in. Yeah, I think a couple other, a couple other. So my understanding, Dr. Smith, is that this mRNA actually causes the cells protein making factory to mm -hmm. go, Oh, cool. Here's a new set of instructions. And it makes, it makes a, um, it makes, it makes an actual spike protein mm -hmm. in your cell. So it makes a spike protein and what it does, it says, well, here's the instructions. Everybody can see I've got the instructions up. All right. We're going to make the spike protein. This is actually my fantasy football draft, but same thing. Um, and then it, um, says here's a spike and then your body goes whoa, whoa, whoa we don't like that spike but the other piece that i get asked a lot about is but that mrna you know i don't want that but what that factory does it goes i made your spike protein i'm done with these instructions i'm just going to rip them up and throw them away yeah um, and that so that mrna is effect that mrna that went into your cell and made this spike protein is gone right after this copy of the spike protein is made. Yeah, it's like hours and then it's used up. Right. So, you know, usually your body just has to kind of keep sending out these instructions in a normal, healthy cell that's making a normal protein. But um, because, because your body actually tears up the instructions and gets rid of it, um, just on a normal basis. That's just what it does with mRNA. So yeah, exactly. It just tears up the mRNA after, you know, I don't think it's longer than a few hours and then it's gone. That makes a spike. So well, uh, as you guys saw that we had Dr. Jeff Jarvis finally be able to jump on. Howdy, Dr. Jeff Jarvis. And I don't Hi, know Mike. if you... Oh, there he is, hello. How are you doing? Sorry about that. Complete jury rig system here. So it's good to see you guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's the calm Dr. Jeff Jarvis. Calm on the outside. Raging yeah. in the middle. Yeah, Raging. I got the text that proved that it isn't calm on the inside. So kind of like to bake to Alaska. That's all right. Real quick. Can you introduce yourself to the people that are watching that maybe haven't joined us before? You bet, guys. I'm Jeff Jarvis. I'm an EMS medical director and emergency physician in Central Texas. Oh, and COVID is over there, right? Completely. 
That's right. Um, we have the governor's executive order that says it. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. We're no better off in Oregon. Anyway. Hey, Mike, uh, thank you again for asking. You ask every day if my lights are still on, and as of today, they're still on. So I appreciate that. <laughs> That's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. All right, let's get back on track here. Um, oh, did you have anything to add to that, Dr. Jeff Jarvis, that last little discussion we were having? Really, I thought Hayden did a great job of summarizing that. Um, Ritu, it's actually bacon, though. Um, it's the mRNA is wrapped in bacon. Thanks. No, I appreciate that. They're trying to help. There could be a that benefit to that. Well, since, you know, the hesitancy seems to be in the South, we figured if we wrapped it in bacon, that might actually help a little bit. But I don't know. Maybe we just need to let more people know it's wrapped in bacon and that would help. That'll work. All right. So we know we've sort of talked about what is a virus. We talked about specifically what is COVID, what is SARS-CoV-2, which creates the disease process known as COVID, right? That we talked about. Yeah, yeah. We talked a little bit about the sort of the vaccine, sort of how it's developed. But one of the questions that people ask a lot, and I hear about it a lot, I think we all do, and that is um, how, how did how did this get approved so fast? And we'll we'll talk about what an EUA is here in a minute, but but really, Dr. Sani, I'll throw this one to you first. Um, people people um, don't know if if there's going to be a new medication or a new vaccine or something like that that comes to the market. There are a number of steps and a number of processes that obviously have to be gone through for that medication or the vaccine or whatever to be approved. And there are probably a, a number of limitations to how something gets approved. Those things can be money, it can be time, it can be the correct kind of medication that you're looking for. Uh, I know in the past we've talked about it a little bit and I don't wanna steal your thunder too much, but if, you're, if, you're, if you have an ingrown toenail medication, um, that would probably take longer because not a lot of people have ingrown toenails and maybe that's a bad example, but maybe just talk us through a little bit about what's sort of normal when it comes to approving something. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, that's that I hear like, well, they invented this so quickly and, and how did they get it done so quickly? So number one, doc, Dr. Smith Hayden gave us a nice background that this is not new technology. So this idea that they made something up out of the blue and got it approved in 12 minutes isn't exactly true. Yeah. Um, it's actually been around for a while and there are a number of animal studies and there are a number of, and there are some small human trials on MRNA vaccines, um, kind of generically. Um, but so, you know, when this started happening, I started figuring out, well, what, you know, let's look at like other vaccines, like how many patients does it take to make, to, to get a vaccine approved and all those sorts of things. And one of the things that it comes down to is you need money you need people and you need time, right? And what was different? So the so what was different about this vaccine is that there was a ton of money throw at, thrown at it, and there was um, there were a ton of volunteers stepping up to be part of the answer. 
And so when you look at something like the shingles vaccine, which had roughly 24,000 people in their trial when it was approved, it took them four years or five years to do that. And that's because you put a sign out and you say, I want people to come be in my shingles vaccine trial. You don't have like a big rush of people. You know, there's not a daily news brief about shingles. Right. right? And <laughs> so you have it just takes time to to get enroll people uh, in a trial for something that uh, like that. The other thing is it takes money. And so to each person you enroll in a trial, um, costs money. And so what you want to do is spread that money out. You know, you're not going to get a ton of volunteers. You know that it's going to take a few years. Let's spread that money out over four years to make it kind of more cost effective. Um, and so you have the same number of volunteers. It just takes four years of time. So now if you take, if you pull all that in and you look at, at where we were last year, um, we, people were screaming for a vaccine. There was technology out there that already exists. There was money funding billions of dollars that the government set aside to pay for this. It was pretty easy to, to take all of that multiple years of effort and put all that human capital, human power, cash, and people who are interested in being in the trial kind of up front. Okay. So when you look at like the COVID, like this Pfizer BioNTech, I think their their trial was thirty five thousand people. So is that correct, guys? You guys, does that sound about right? Sounds about. I'm so I'd have to look it up, but that does yeah. sound about right. Yeah. Their initial trial was like thirty five thousand people, and but they were able to enroll. And I think Jeff's looking to see exactly. They were able to enroll all of their people in that first like month. Right. So instead of having to spread it out for four to six years. And then, you know, they needed to get six months worth of six months worth of data. And they were able to do that within six or seven months of starting the trial. And that's how they were able to sort of start a trial in sort of June of 2020 and have enough data to apply for an EUA. And we'll talk about that in a minute um, in uh, um, as early as end of November, early December. Jeff looks like he has an answer. 43,000, 43,448. There were 21,720 and 40 and uh, 21,728 in the placebo group. So yeah. 21,000 people in each group. So the first, the first thing that I say to people like this was not studied correctly or so, is that there were actually more people in just the Pfizer trial than there were in, in any trial up to then in sort of initial trial for vaccines that led to an approval. And then if you throw in the Moderna trial, which was roughly the same size, now you have double. So yeah. they were able to condense everything because there was will of the people, there were volunteers and there were a lot of money, there was enough money to pay for it. And, now, and the, the I, other, oh, go oh, ahead. And, and I think you know one thing that I also get questions about is also the science and how they kind of got that vaccine so quickly. Because, you know, they're working on these other projects um, for, you know, for years uh, leading up to COVID. But then how are they able to, you know, develop a vaccine that they can put into trial so quickly? You know, that's another concern that people have. And the, the reality is that these mRNA vaccines 
right. are very easy to manipulate and change because all you're doing is you're changing the mRNA sequence. So really early on, I think before even 2021 hit, I think right at, right at sorry, before 2020 hit, so like January, before January 2020, we had the entire uh, SARS-CoV-2 genome sequenced. I mean, that, that science is really easy to do. Right. So all they had to do was to take that sequence for the spike protein, throw it into their little butter, little butter droplets, and boom, you have a new vaccine. And so uh, it's, it was really easy and something they had done for other, other infections like Zika and influenza uh, before COVID. But once COVID hit, they're like, okay, we got something. We have a way we can do this. Let's just, let's put it in a vaccine and see if it works. Yeah, you know, so so the, the folks who were designing it, really, yeah. they've been working so long. If you think about this, I think about it as a there's a delivery device and then there's a payload. So the bacon, the the surrounding nanolipoparticle, that's the thing that is so hard to build. That's what took a while to build. That was built and they were waiting to waiting for the right virus to as a proof of concept to show that it worked. They thought Zika was going to be the thing. Yeah, they this did. Is the one that's going right. to be able to prove that this works. The problem is Zika sort of, thank God, fizzled out. Um, there just weren't enough cases of Zika. And then this came along. And Hayden, you're exactly right. Within like three months of the first case in China, we had the entire genome sequenced. One month after that, they, all they had to do was take the payload and put it into the bacon. And, and they had that payload ready within a month. Yeah, it was really quick. And this is another thing where we learn how young Hayden is, because the fact that they could have the entire genome of a virus done so quickly. Yeah. Pretty freaking amazing. It's yeah, a big it's deal. Pretty amazing. And, and we were, <laughs> you know, you know, thinking back to when they could get full, like the full genome of stuff done, it, it, it was pretty impressive. So, yeah. I mean, I have, I have a background in bioinformatics and genomics and stuff like that. So, you know, to see that happen so quickly, it was just, it was so cool to see um, yeah. all of the, all the genomics and stuff get done so quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and the other thing, I'm glad you brought up Zika because uh, that really is the, the vector that Moderna tried to get this mRNA vaccine thing going. And if you think about the patients that have, Zika, it's pregnant patients. And so, you know, they were kind of working to get it both safe in pregnant people. So it had to be a really safe vaccine mm -hmm. uh, and it had to be effective against Zika. And so, you know, that, you know, that is another testament to how the, the safety of these vaccines really is baked into their creation um, yeah. way before COVID came on. Yeah. So when we, here's the thing that is getting me so excited about this technology First off, I'm really glad that we have a vaccine that is as effective as it is against COVID. But I look at the the concept of this. The concept is you have this delivery device. You just load in a new payload and off it goes. The ability to create rapidly um, vaccines, not just against viruses, but against problems, say, with proteins like cystic fibrosis. Um, this technology has amazing um, potential, so I'm I'm really excited about it. 
Yeah, there's a lot of potential for it. You know, I think, you know, we could talk about that for hours on end. And I think look, we want to focus on COVID here, but yeah, there's a lot of implications uh, in infections and cancer with uh, mRNA vaccines. They're not going away. So Ratu, one other thing you mentioned, you were talking about the numbers of people that were enrolled in each arm of the, the Pfizer trial and the Moderna trial. Let's just take the Pfizer trial, for example, 21,000 people in each arm. Um, and yet it seems like the Pfizer vaccine is controversial. There is another product that Pfizer has out there um, that went through exactly the same steps with about a thousand people in each arm. And I have yet to hear my a arm. person, certainly a single man, complain about the science behind Viagra. No complaints about that. That was a thousand people in each arm, 21,000 people. Right. That's, and that's, that's, that's exactly right. That the size, the size of vaccine trials compared to other new medication trials in general is, is larger. Um, and then when you throw in the fact that there were concurrent mRNA trials plus the J and J trial, which is a different, completely different um, technology. Um, when you when you when you throw all that in, you and then there were there were other trials and other products. There were hundreds of thousands of people enrolled in the trials at the same time. Um, so the other question that I think that Mike was there another question that you wanted to piggyback around EUAs or something like well, that? I'll tell you what, before you get to the EUA, Ratu, can yeah. I just talk a little basic science here, like statistics? Sure. Because we frequently think that a study with a bigger N, meaning a larger sample size, is by definition a better study. The reason that the size of your study matters is in terms of power to detect things. So we could have run this study if we were looking for the power to detect a change with a couple of hundred people right. in each arm. Because the difference that you see between vaccinated and unvaccinated is huge. So you don't need massive numbers to detect that because it's a huge thing. So the only reason you need massive numbers of people in a study is to detect things that might be really, really, really small differences. They did these massive numbers for safety because yeah, they wanted to have the statistical power to identify even little bitty differences. Yeah, so I think that those numbers are there because of safety. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And one, well, I think that you know you're comparing vaccine trials to treatment trials. Uh, and they they are a little bit different as far as the some of the regulations go. So yeah, the, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity to use the Viagra joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they uh, so for vaccine trials, they have higher. It's required to have more people in the trial because they uh, because their safety. You're, you're giving this to a healthy person instead of giving it to a sick person, and so. There's different things and different safety data that they want to collect with that. Um, and they want to see those rare rare side effects that may come from a, from a vaccine that you're giving to an otherwise healthy person. Um, and what, what is great about the vaccines is they you know hit the requirements that the government, or sorry, that the CDC and FDA have for their trials. They just hit it really quickly because again, there's tons of people that wanted the vaccine. 
And so they didn't skimp on any of their requirements for a full FDA approval. Uh, they were just able to get the numbers really fast because they had money and funding. So it's not like that the trials, they actually went exceeded the expectations. If I recall, and this is, uh, I could be a little fuzzy on the details, but the requirements that they got, that they had going into the trials was to get a 70% efficacy and have 35,000 participants. Um, I think that's where that 35,000 comes from. And I so- it was 50% oh, efficacy actually. Was it 50%? Yeah, it yeah. was, it was 50%. And for most vaccines, that is, you know, that's pretty okay, to be honest with you. Most vaccines have efficacies around 70%. So for this mRNA vaccine to have 95% efficacy, I mean, that is, those are numbers that you just don't see in any other vaccine anywhere. And so it shows that, you know, this vaccine is both safe and extremely effective. So... I, I, I think this is a good time to bring up exactly what an emergency use authorization is, yeah. um, because that might be a term that sort of prior to a COVID vaccine um, might have sounded crazy to some people or something that they have never heard of. So, Dr. Sani, what exactly is an emergency use authorization um, versus just something being approved? Yeah. Yeah. Uh you know, we'll try to make this quick because we're 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 getting we still have a lot to cover, and it's all we do. We do. Um, but it's exactly like it sounds. It was an emer it, it there was an emergency situation, so they wanted to authorize it. Um, and what an EUA does, it does a few things. One, it gets you to the front of the line. So the FDA has thousands of drugs in its pipeline for approval. And the reality is that that it just takes time for the bureaucracy to to roll. Okay, so what when you apply for an EUA, you're saying this is an emergency for whatever reason, and we we want to get to the front of the line. So that's the first thing; it gets you to the front of the line. The other piece is, you know, we've just hit full FDA approval in the last couple of weeks for the Pfizer vaccine, but. FDA approval of the vaccine is not just about safety and efficacy. And that's the key. The emergency use authorization by law has to take into account the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine or drug or, or device that you're trying to get an EUA for. Um, it is in the bar for those for safety and efficacy is not changed. So they didn't they didn't look at the they didn't look at the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine and say, well, our normal bar for safety in a vaccine would be this high, but because it's an EUA, we're gonna go like skimpy. No, the bars for safety and effectiveness or efficacy, actually efficacy have to be the same. Um, what is different from an e what what makes an EU a, EU a faster is that there are a number of other things that go into an FDA approval besides just the safety and efficacy of the drug, uh, manufacturing processes, um, those sorts of things. That's number one. And number two, to be fair and honest, the standard for and for a vaccine trial 
is not only um, six months worth of data, safety and efficacy, but a full year of safety data. Um, and so they actually applied for the EUA before they had a full year of data. So they weren't even allowed to apply until they had one full year of data. And we'll, so somebody's going to go, aha, well, they skimped on safety. But the reality is that every other vaccine trial ever done showed that if there was a problem with the vaccine, it was within the first two weeks. And, and so that was their justification for saying they could apply for an EUA after six months. Um, and so they applied for that emergency use authorization that they then obtained um, and then went on. Pfizer has gone on to obtain that for uh, down to age 12. Um, and then now received full FDA authorization, meaning they have one full year of data, meaning that they had a lot, they had, you know, the FDA came to the factories and, and actually did a top to bottom scrubbing of, uh, you know, reviewing every single process in the factory. It's very time consuming to, to do all this sort of work. Um, and they, uh, to, 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 to get the full FDA approval. Um, and so that's why they ended up, that's why um, that's the difference between an EUA and a full FDA approval. Um, but there was no skimping on safety to get to, um, to get to where we were. And again, the efficacy was much better than the goal, which was somewhere between 50 and 70%. Hey, Ritu, one thing that I'd like to point out here, because I've heard it, um, I think, confabulated. So a lot of people will say they don't want to take the vaccine because it's experimental. They think the E in EUA is for experimental. Correct. It's not. People think that. That's The E is for emergency. And, and, to be, and the other piece is that the trial for the, the trial was not enrolling any more people. So no, you weren't, you, nobody who got the vaccine once it got EUA um, was part of the trial except for the monitoring phase. So every vaccine, once it's approved, there has to be basically continuous monitoring. So that's in the trial plan when they, when they, but the reality is that never goes away. Um, but the E stands for emergency, emergency use authorization, not experimental. There's, it's not, you're not part of the experiment if you got it after the EUA. Only the folks who signed up gave informed consent um, and were enrolled in, you know, as early as June, I think, of 2020. Like my daughter, by the way, my daughter was in the Moderna trial. Oh, cool. We were pretty sure that she got the uh, the active arm. She got a fever, and I was like, I don't think a placebo is going to give you a fever. <laughs> <laughs> there were people in the placebo arm that got a fever, though. Probably mm -hmm. so. There were, because some percentage of those people are going to get sick, you know, get a fever within a week anyway. Well, and we just because it's a placebo doesn't mean it's not a, you don't have real things. Placebos are strong things. Mm-hmm. Well, so we've got a great history of what viruses are. We reviewed the sort of development of RNA vaccines. 
we've talked about EUAs. We've talked about why was this one so fast compared to other ones. Let's talk about the shots on the arm. So Dr. Jarvis, uh, how many doses have been given? What have we been seeing as the result? You bet. So it's uh, the numbers that I have are for the U.S. alone. And this is as of August 24th. So sorry that my date is five days old. Um, but there have been 205 million doses of Pfizer in the United States. 205 million. There have been 14.3 million. And I'm rounding just a little bit but 14.3 million doses of Moderna, and there have been 14 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson in the United States. Um, that is, um, let me see, roughly speaking, carry the one, a lot. That's a lot of vaccines that have been given. And what we know is you have looked at the efficacy of, um, so efficacy in the trials, unbelievably good. Efficiency in the real world, still really, really good. Now, if you take a look at everybody knows Delta is sort of a whole different beast. It's probably not a whole different, but it's definitely a more pissed off beast. Um, it's more transmissible, higher, higher viral loads. Um, but even when you look at uh, Delta variant, you are still seeing substantial protection against, well, you're still seeing substantial protection against asymptomatic disease, just not as, oh my God, miraculous as we saw with the prior uh, variants, but still very, very good. And one of the ways that you can actually assess this is, well, let's take a look at the people who are getting sick, who are being hospitalized, who are putting, being put on a ventilator and being um, put in the ICU and are dying and say, well, how many of them are vaccinated and how many of them are not vaccinated? Now, if you take a look at this, this is some data from the CDC. And if you think that this graph looks an awful lot like the efficacy graphs, the Kaplan-Meier curves in the original trials, that's because they do. You're still seeing a huge difference in the protection that you get with the vaccine. Um, if you look at, um, I think I sent you some data from my hospital, Ritu, um, um, and what you'll see is that the overwhelming um, proportion of patients who are um, in the hospital, who are sick on a ventilator, who are in the ICU and who die, overwhelming majority of them are unvaccinated. So if you look at breakthrough vaccines, well, how many, what proportion of people are actually breaking through? Well, obviously the calculation is gonna vary depending on the study, but most of them are somewhere between one and 2% of people who are fully vaccinated will have some type of breakthrough infection. So let's think, if you think about this a lot, there's a little bit of a recall bias at, um, at work here. So let's just think about an analogy. You go to buy a red Silverado pickup, let's say. And the reason you picked red is because nobody else has a red Silverado pickup. You know, you've been looking around. Don't blow my, don't blow my example, Richard, by telling me. I'm just asking if it has to be a Chevy. Does it have to be a Chevy? It does. I'm a Chevy guy, so it has to be a Chevy. Your so let's just say that you have never seen a red Silverado. 
you go to the dealership and let's just pretend that dealerships actually have cars that they can sell these days. Um, you go, you get your brand new, beautiful red Silverado and you drive home and you see 15 other red Silverados on the road. It's not because there are actually more red Silverados. It's just because you're noticing them. You're more aware. So if you look at this, 1% of those fully vaccinated will um, develop, develop COVID. Well, 1%, if there are only a million people vaccinated, 1% is a relatively small number, and you're not likely to hear about it much. When there are 100 million, 200 million people who are vaccinated, it's still 1%, but that's a much larger number, and you're most definitely going to hear about it more. So the actual numbers of breakthroughs are certainly going up. But you would actually expect that as the proportion of the population that gets vaccinated goes up. Now, if you look at, there was a, a nice paper that was done that looked at um, across the United States, what the risk of, uh, let me see here. The risk of being hospitalized if you're vaccinated compared to unvaccinated, it is 36 fold. So relative risk, 36% or 36 fold. Times, times, not percent, times. That is. You're basically 40 times more likely to be hospitalized if you're not vaccinated. Correct. If you want to turn that into percentages, that's like 3,990% higher risk, much higher risk. That's For a lot. death, it's 21-fold higher, so substantially higher. Um, so what we know is that the vaccines have been given to a really large proportion of the population. Yeah. Um, so it is, I think I actually looked it up. Um, where are we? Over, I'm sorry, worldwide, according to the data, 5 billion doses of COVID vaccine. That's a lot of vaccine. Yeah. Um, they are not holding up against as well against Delta as they did against Alpha and uh, Beta, but still remarkably, remarkably well. And honestly, substantially better than we initially hoped before we saw the initial trials. Well, they are holding up, though, on the hospitalization front. Mm -hmm. There's no the, the hospitalization piece. They are still holding up, but the infection rate is a little bit higher during Delta. But, I, you know, with the number of doses that were given, you know, back to sort of what I talked about with EUA and but but also kind of research. This is the most studied vaccine in all of history. Period. So this is the idea, idea that it's experimental between the combination of the fact that the trials were greater than any other trial but that the surveillance, and we'll talk about a little bit about that later on, um, but that the surveillance has been so thorough, this really is the most studied vaccine throughout all of history. What, don't you think, Hayden? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, just the vast number of people that have gotten in such a short period of time, and with you know the beauty of the internet, it just has been put into a you know terrible, like just a, a really microscope of criticism and, um, you know, misinformation that uh, has then, uh, you know, allowed us to have to double check and make sure that what we're saying is true. You know, I, I think that is, you know, one thing that uh, critics uh, do bring to the table is they make us double check our work. 
Uh, and so as a result, we've had to do that time and time again. Well, we're all, I'm going to tell you that, that Jeff and I are very skeptical in general. When, when a new study comes out, we actually don't believe it <laughs> until we read it three or four times. I'm with uh, you there. And, and so uh, even though we are, you know, we're, we're talking about these results in a very positive way, because I think they're very positive. But I've read a lot of science in my life. These are the most overwhelmingly positive results I've ever read <laughs> in a lot of different ways. Um, the, I know we had we were going to talk about breakthroughs in a little bit, but Jeff brought them up in terms of the numbers, and I have kind of a way I like to to be, I like to sort of demonstrate it for folks. So, Mike, is it okay if I run through this real quick? Please, yeah. Because um, one of the things you started seeing this in the coverage of Israel, which is a very vaccinated population, but that people were freaking out because 50% of the infections were vaccinated or whatever. And clearly that means that the vaccine's not waning and, or is waning, but that's the exact opposite. The fact that the, as more of our population is vaccinated, we would expect a greater percentage of the of the people who get infected to be vaccinated because they're so overwhelmingly more. And so when you start seeing, oh, 50% of the people who got an infection were vaccinated, that's meant to alarm you to say it's not working, but it's actually the exact opposite. And the way I like to demonstrate this when I talk to people is this. Let's say you get invited to a party and that party, there's a hundred people there and you're a very careful person and you um, only want to go if there are people who are vaccinated. And of those 100 people that are vaccinated... You're killing me, brother, by the way. What? With, that, with, with that example. Oh, yeah, I'm killing you. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so Inside joke. So 90 people are vaccinated. And then the, the, the guy shows up, the uninvited guest, his name is Mr. Delta or Mrs. Delta. They show up. And they come to the party and Mr. Delta is a very low talker. So when you talk to Mr. Delta, you got to get like really close and everybody at the party talks to Mr. Delta and then Mr. Delta leaves. And then at the end of the day, everybody who wasn't vaccinated. So the 10 people who weren't vaccinated got COVID because they talked to Mr. Delta, but the 90 people who were vaccinated and let's say the vaccine is like, just like our current vaccine, 90% effective. Of the 90 people who got vaccinated, only 10% of them got infected, and that's nine. So nine vaccinated people got infected and 10 unvaccinated people got infected. So roughly 50% of the infected people were vaccinated. So that causes a lot of consternation, but when you look at it, it it's just exactly the way numbers should work. Now. Let's say we go to another party. This time only 30% are vaccinated, which is roughly the same percentage of vaccination in our low vaccinated areas. So only 30 people are vaccinated and 70 people aren't. And Mr. Delta shows up at that party, running through all the stuff, low talker, blah, blah, blah. This time, 70, 70 people who are not vaccinated get infected, but only three people who are. And so you have 73 people who are getting sick but only about 5% of them are vaccinated. And that's, and, and, and so, so when you compare the two, you, you look at one and like, oh, only about 5% of the 
people who are sick are vaccinated. But in this other place, I don't want to go there because 50% who got sick. But in the in the in one party, only 19 people got sick. In the other party, 73 people got sick. So the vaccine was very effective. It worked very well. Um, so these percentages can can be used to fool you. Vaccine the vaccine is still effective, and the more people that have it, the more we'll see a few of these infections, and that percentage should rise. Um, and that is that's normal statistics. That's just the way the numbers will work out. And that doesn't mean anything is reduced or not working or you're less likely to get it or you're or it's it's, you know, just understand that anytime anybody reports the vaccine percentage rate is getting higher vaccinated, it's um, it's it's kind of a false equivalency. And I think that the real challenge, the problem that we run into is similar to the one that Hayden had mentioned. So you have this concept that Ritu is talking about. And unfortunately, math can be hard. And we don't have, I think as a species, we have not evolved to understand relative risk. Uh, we don't judge risk well. I mean, look at all the people who ride around on their motorcycles in shorts, flip-flops and no helmet who are afraid to fly because of how dangerous it is. We're not very good at perceiving risks, um, but we're also not very good at understanding numbers, um, just like Ritu was talking about. And there is a portion of our population who is seeking to make money and wreak havoc off of intentionally manipulating these numbers. So an example recently, is it went out on one of the big anti-vax websites that people who are vaccinated are 25 times more likely to infect someone else than someone who's not vaccinated. Um, and they point to a study. Well, that's not what the study said at all. It was comparing those infected with who had never been vaccinated, comparing those who were infected with Delta versus Alpha. Nobody involved was vaccinated. That was willful and intentional. Um, and it was designed to to confuse people. So you have the math is hard thing, which is just a natural thing. Our, it affects all of us. And then you have the willful um, misinformation and disinformation, and it doesn't help matters at all. Yeah, well, and, and kind of to that point, you know, when I, so my wife is a, is a PhD student, or is a PhD graduate. She does cancer biology and things like that. You know, I'm not an expert in, in what she does. So when I go and read her articles, I commonly come to very wrong and weird conclusions that she then, um, you know, reminds me what, you know, that she's the expert in, and tells me what is supposed to be understood there. And so, you know, that's the other thing with a lot of these trials is who are they written for? Uh, and, you know, when, when I read you know, COVID information and read that, I commonly come to different conclusions uh, than, uh, you know, other people in my family. And so it isn't until I'm able to kind of discuss and, and elaborate on the conclusions that they're making that, you know, we can understand one another. Yeah, I mean, that, make, that makes a ton of sense. So let's, let's jump on to our next topic here. And I'm hoping we can generate some questions from the folks that are watching, but, um, uh, I wanted to talk about the various systems. So the, 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 the system that has been put in place to track all the adverse events 
from vaccines. And uh, Dr. Sani, we, we sort of uh, teed you up to talk about this one to use your golf analogy there just real quick. Um, but there is a system out there that people are encouraged to report um, effects that they may have, right? And and if and if you're one of the people that got the vet one of the vaccines, you probably enrolled and got text messages from the CDC that said, "How are you feeling today?" Uh, you know all these kind of things. And so, um, I want you to talk about just a couple of things. One, what is the VAERS system? So the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And then also, I would love to have a group discussion about when you give. 100 million, 200 million, 300 million doses of whatever, there are people that are going to have sort of normal medical problems. People still have normal medical things that happen to them. Like and diverticulitis. Like diverticulitis, like two people I know. One guy I know really well, the other guy I know pretty well. Uh, we both got the same vaccine. We both had diverticulitis. Now, is that weird? Uh, yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, but so talk a little bit about that. I'd love to talk. I would love to have a, a good discussion uh, about sort of what happens to people when they get the vaccine. So the vaccine adverse event reporting system is basically in place as one of the tools that the CDC and FDA use together jointly to help monitor safety with vaccines. And they're like, well, why don't they, people are like, why do they do this for this, but not anything else? Well, they actually do. You can report adverse events to the FDA for any medication, for any FDA approved piece of equipment. So number one, it's not unusual that they have this vaccine advert, the VAERS system. I, I point you at the example of Draperidol, Ratu. <laughs> yeah. Our favorite medication to use, Draperidol, is a great example. Um, and it, it does take on a little bit of a different tone, though, because of vaccines are part of the public health mission. And as, as Hayden said, you're giving a vaccine to a healthy person. Um, and so the, that's why the CDC is involved also, because the CDC is the nation's public health arm. Um, so the, the vaccine adverse, um, uh, adverse event reporting system, and for those of you who are in safety, let me just put, pull aside. We've talked about safety on this podcast before, but one of the hallmarks of a safe culture, of safety culture, is you want to have these reporting systems in place that make it very easy for people to report when something bad happens. And so what the, what this, what the VARA system does is it's a uh, reporting system that is open, that number one, healthcare professionals are required to report. So if you give somebody a vaccine and they get hives, you are required to report to VARES that this person got a vaccine and then had an allergic re reaction. But the other piece is that it is open for the public. And so basically, um, which I did not do, but we could have gone online and said, I got the vaccine. Um, uh, the second, I got my second dose five weeks ago, and now I have diverticulitis. 
Is it related to the vaccine? I don't know, but I'm reporting this adverse event that happened after releasing, re receiving the vaccine. And so what people need to understand about this system, oh, we lost Jeff. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. What, Weird. We'll keep people, an eye out for him. What people need to understand about this system is that it is not causality, um, but it is association. And it's also a, an exercise in great transparency. This data is open to anybody, which has also led to some misuse of the data uh, where people have posted things and said, well, you know, this many people died after getting the vaccine. It's right in VAERS. But as we know, some percentage of, the, of, of people will die at any point in time. Um, and so what they're, what they're looking for is, is, um, is sort of things above the kind of standard. So what, what, they, what the CDC and the FDA do with this data, they consider this their early warning system. And a great example would be myocarditis. And, and you know, these vaccines are extremely safe. Extremely safe doesn't mean zero risk, right? So there are things that can happen to the vaccinated. And we can talk, if Mike, if you're Mike, if Jeff comes back, part of what he wanted to talk about was, um, was, was sort of, you know, kind of some of these risks compared to the other, the rest of the population. But these are an early warning system that they then, um, um, they then take the, if something kind of bubbles up, then they will take that and take a closer look at it. And, and what they what they said, what and myocarditis is a great example. Yeah. There were a few, I think, seventeen or eighteen hundred cases of myocarditis that were reported, and and that started bubbling up. And they're like, "Hmm, this doesn't seem right. This seems a little odd. Let's take a closer look." And then they are able to then look at cases much more closely uh, and evaluate the relative risk. And what they found was that roughly 700 to 800 cases of myocarditis or an inflammation of the heart that occurred in primarily young people uh, who got the vaccine. Um, and at the time, it was compared to 353 million doses of that vaccine that were given. So it's extremely small. It's so small that it would not have risen up in, in a 30 or 40,000 person trial. Um, and so, you know, statistically, it does look like there are a few more cases of myocarditis than you would expect uh, from the general population. Not a lot, though, because at the same time, you would have expected several hundred people to just get myocarditis randomly at the same time. Sort of like diverticulitis. What? Or diverticulitis. That's exactly right. Um, and, uh, um, and, and so, but when they did this sort of statistical analysis, and it's all there on the CDC's webpage, they found that this is a risk uh, that is exceedingly small, but it's not zero. The other piece is that, but the, the other piece is that people... When somebody, you can download the VAERS data yourself and play with it. Um, again, that's the raw data. So when you look at how they did dealt with myocarditis, it raised a flag. They then did, they then brought in, re, you know, researchers to research the data, follow up on the individual cases, 
follow closely with the physicians. You know, we were told if you have a case with myocarditis, call this phone number so that you could talk to somebody from the CDC. Um, and so just the VAERS data, VAERS data that it itself is not something that you can look at and say there's causality here just because something showed up in VAERS. And then there's all kinds of stories that there are people who are populating VAERS with falsehoods just to make it look bad. Um, and then some, I know some people who actually put in things like I grew a third arm just because to prove that you could do that. So, um, uh, you know, that's, um, that's the, the VAERS system. And when you hear people say all the data is in VAERS, just look right at it. That is very raw, unscrubbed, un, un, uh, there's been, nobody's looked at any of those cases uh, to really, but it's an important part of that monitoring system that we have in place for vaccines. Yeah, well, and I think the Johnson Johnson vaccine is another uh, you know, success story. Going back to the point that you know, these vaccines are, have been the most scrutiny of any other vaccine we've had in history. Um, you know, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, though, is the concern about it causing um, blood clots, uh, specifically in the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they te did temporarily hold giving Johnson & Johnson vaccines out to people because they wanted to evaluate this risk. And so, you know, that tells me that the VAR system is working uh, and it is working in these COVID vaccines. Uh, eventually, the researchers got in there. They looked at the data. They cleaned the data, uh, got rid of all the, you know, incorrect, um, you know, the, 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 they cleaned the data so that it, you can make comparisons, probably the best way to say that. And, uh, and they didn't show that it had any majors, you know, changes over the normal rates in the population. And so uh, it was then allowed to restart the vaccine. Uh, but that does tell me that the VAR system works uh, and it is something that is actively being watched by the, the research teams. Yeah, well, that is, that is good. Um, and yeah, I mean, take, I mean, I, the fact that anyone can go in there, go look at the data, I think that's good. But also, I guess you have to realize that, you know, do you, one, do you know what you're looking at? Can you parse that stuff out? I mean, it's, it, it's just, it's just can be a mess, right? <laughs> like, Oh Lord. Like, I'm not going to go in there. I mean, I know this much about that kind of stuff. I'm not going to go in there and, and, and try to come up with my own conclusions based on what I'm seeing in VAERS. Like that's, I don't know. That's just me. I don't, I would, like, why would I do that? It makes no sense to me. But that's just me. That's just me. Um, all right. So we have already talked a little bit about breakthroughs. How about boosters? Boosters are coming up uh, as sort of a hot topic. Um, and I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are on that. I see that there's a couple of trains of thought out there. For those of you that maybe have been vaccinated, um, this talk of boosters is coming up. So, uh, Dr. Smith, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So boosters is a um, it's a topic that there is a lot of evolving evidence coming out. It is. Um, it is hard to, you know, I, I guess, so I like taking the, the stance that the, the IDSA, which is the Society of Infectious Disease Doctors, uh, that they take when it comes to boosters for otherwise healthy people. I'll, I'll start with there because that's probably the most succinct answer that I have. 
And I'll, this is from their website, and I think it really does a good job of summing up the data that we currently have on boosters, uh, and then it um, uh, and then it kind of reflects my my opinions as well. They say um, there you know there are many s small observational studies that show that additional doses of mRNA COVID vaccines can increase antibody concentrations in certain previously vaccinated individuals. Um, but importantly, these studies use different schedules for third dose, and then they use a wide variety of antibody assays. Thus, their results cannot be easily pooled or compared with each other. So what that tells me is that the data isn't, and then I looked at a lot of the studies that they then cited to make that comment, and there's a lot of conflicting evidence there. So there's no real consensus yet. And, um, you know, the, the data is kind of is hard to compare to one another. Yeah. So it tells me that we need to research this more and try and see what it is as far as boosters in healthy people. But what is pretty well established at this point is boosters in immunocompromised people. Uh, and there has been a benefit shown in, in giving a third booster to that population. And so the idea behind that is to get um, what we call zero conversion. Basically, going from zero antibodies to having effective antibodies uh, against coronavirus. And so when we report uh, you know, a 95% efficacy, what that means is that 95% of people were able to get to a point that they can prevent serious COVID infection. They got, the, they got enough antibodies to do that. When we run that data through, uh, and that data comes from the original clinical trials, uh, and it's been redemonstrated against Delta variant um, for for most populations that there is still this very high, over ninety percent efficacy about from pre preventing serious disease. When we get to um, immunocompromised people, though, it's a little bit different because. You know, just because you give them the, a vaccine and introduce the body to the spike protein doesn't necessarily mean that they create those antibodies. And so uh, we see levels that are quite a bit lower of, again, this zero conversion to be, being able to have the, enough you know, antibodies to fight the infection. Giving a third boost, a third dose of the vaccine has shown some benefit uh, in this population to allow more people to seroconvert or develop those antibodies. Um, the data does not, the data yet, it's there, it's in process, but the data yet is still kind of messy about whether this translates into, um, translates into the real world that you are then able to avoid serious infections. Yeah. Um, and so that, that is kind of the piece that I personally am you know, looking for is, do we see that reflect in the population that, yes, we are, you, you do also get uh, you know, a benefit as far as avoiding serious infection. That's good. So we, we did have a question coming in the chat, which I think is good. And, and um, we've covered a ton of our stuff. So I think that's probably good as well. Um, but Brian wants to know, uh, long-term effects, uh, any way we can address that? Is there any actual real risk that in 10 years, we will all grow third arms out of nowhere? Uh, 
I, I can feel that one. Um, so the, the idea that you're going to cause this prolonged effect from the vaccine is, um, it hasn't been shown. So we have a, a year's worth of data now on millions of people worldwide that the vaccine doesn't have any long-term major effects. Um, and then just conceptually, when you think about the mRNA vaccine, again, it's mRNA. It's something that's in your body for hours and then it goes away. Your body literally eats it up. So it's not in your body for that long. It does cause an immune response. Uh, and that's a response that we are very well uh, understanding of due to other vaccines. Uh, and typically three months is when you, when we can say, as far as safety data goes, that there's going to be no prolonged effect from the vaccine. With that said, you know, we, we are keeping track of that. Uh, and for a year now, we haven't seen anything. And I, you know, have a strong suspicion that we won't see any long-term effects from the vaccine. What we do see long-term effects of is from COVID. Uh, COVID has long hauler syndrome. It has, you know, you have scarred lungs. People need lung transplants. I mean, COVID ravages your body. And so when I'm comparing the two, you know, I, I, look, at, I look at vaccines and I say, I don't see anything long-term here. Sure, people may get headaches and, and fevers for maybe a day or two. I know there are exceptions. But after you know, at least a couple of weeks, all of that's gone, and you're you you don't have any risk of getting COVID. Which then I look over here in this hand, you know, you have long haul you have you know prolonged neurologic effects. That's actually being well established in the research now as well. Is you know prolonged almost like a dementia type picture um, after COVID, and you know all of these things that uh, tell me you know COVID has long term effects. Um, and so, no, vaccines don't cause long-term effects, long-term symptoms. It's not in your body for that long. And the effects that we do see are gone in a couple of weeks. The other piece too is, you know, I, I had one person that I talked to that said, you know, you watch late night TV. It's like, if you took Zantac or if you took, you know, and, and, and um, and, one of the key, key differences is that if you look at almost, no, if you look at all of these scenarios where a drug was removed from the market post, post FDA approval, and there's, um, it's always like 20 years of exposure to that drug before you start to see something. And mm. there is only one or two, depending on, you know, your exposure to the vaccine is only right after the shot. So maybe it's once or twice or potentially a third time. Um, and so, you know, there's no comparison uh, between sort of that and sort of these medications that people took for 15 or 20 or 30 years and then started to see some negative effects. Um, and, and I think they're just, they're not interchangeable, but people like to point that out um, that that uh, that they would be. But yeah, it's repeated exposure over a long period of time, none of which happens with a vaccine. Yeah, again, vaccines are not they're not medicine. They're not a they're not a you know a treatment. They're a vaccine. So it's it's different data. It's comparing apples to oranges. 
Mike, did you get the uh, that last image that I, I did? Yeah, give me two seconds here, and I'll get that. I think it up. hits. By the way, I just uh, sorry about my little internet issue. Um, the internet gods are conspiring against me today. So I wanted to talk about this. Um, this was uh, popped up in New England Journal of Medicine uh, within the last week. And I just got a copy of this today. I found out about it. And what this is, I think this image, one, it's a great data visualization. I'm sort of data visualization nerd. But this really gets to the perspective, the point that Hayden was making. If you're looking at the risk of something, myocarditis or um, deep venous thrombosis, just from the vaccine, you're kind of not comparing you're, you're missing half the story. So if you choose not to get vaccinated, that's great. You are certainly not at any risk from the vaccine, anything theoretic that might happen. That's true. I, I don't know how you could argue with that. But you're kind of at risk for getting the exact same thing from COVID. And this image shows you the relative risk if you're looking at the blue line, and what we're looking at is um, basically, I call them TIE fighter plots because they look like a TIE fighter to me. Uh, but the, the circle in the middle is the percentage of people um, or the, the relative risk, I should say, that has um, something, whether it's deep venous thrombosis, arrhythmia, or appendicitis. And in blue, it is comparing those who were vaccinated compared to those who were not vaccinated. And then in the, I don't know, is that yellow gold? It's comparing people, all people who were not vaccinated, and it's comparing the unvaccinated who had COVID to the unvaccinated who did not have COVID. And the little dot is the proportion, and the two um, wings of the TIE fighter, if you will, are the 95% confidence interval. And if all of, if both wings are on one side of one, that means that is a statistically significant difference. And if you look at uh, deep venous thrombosis, for example, because that was an issue with the Johnson & Johnson, and this was in particular looking at the mRNA um, virus or vaccines, you'll see that there is not a significant difference between those who are vaccinated and those who are not. That's great. But there is, if you look at the gold, substantially higher risk of getting a DVT if you have COVID. So you can't take, well, I mean, you can, but it's probably not in your best interest. If you just focus on the risk from a vaccine and completely exclude the risk of getting COVID, because we know getting the vaccine dramatically decreases your risk of getting COVID. And that then dramatically decreases your risk of getting the badness that comes along with COVID, including deep venous thrombosis, myocardial infarction, intracranial hemorrhage, myocarditis, pericarditis, pulmonary embolism, and acute kidney injury. So you have to compare those two things together. There was, not, and we're gonna change lanes just real quick, because I know there's a couple more things I just wanna get wrapped up here. Um, and there was, uh, there continues to be questions about people that, um, are of childbearing age and that would like to be pregnant or are pregnant um, or, you know, just other folks as it relates to getting the vaccine. Did we have any information for those folks? Get your shot. 
That would be the vet information for them. I'll tell you what. I think Ratu was going to, uh, Mikey, I think you still have the image up. Um, I, do. I think Ratu was going to talk about um, something that I had not even heard, which was about changes to, or maybe it was Hayden, about changes to menstrual cycle. But I will take on the issue of um, miscarriage and fertility. So there was a report from a PhD that came out that said, because of the genetic components of the spike protein and the genetic components of a protein that is found on placenta, there is a theoretic risk of cross-reactivity. Therefore, the antibodies that you get from the vaccine would attack the placenta. Great. So it took me a good five hours to track this one down. And it turns out there's no truth to it, but I still don't have those five hours back. <laughs> so where this comes from is if you look at the genomic sequence for the spike protein and compare it to this placental protein, there are, I believe, three or four, there's a three or four amino acid sequence that is the same between them. Now we're talking about a thousand base pairs. I'd say three or four? Yes, that doesn't seem like very many. Correct. Let's let's go back and just think about math. If you have a thousand base pairs, and remember, there are only four options for these, right? <laughs> there are only four base pairs that you have to build this entire sequence. And there is a sequence of three that both of these things, the antibody and or the spike protein and the uh, placental protein have in common. Three out of a thousand is not enough to actually create a functional thing. So that is where this hypothetical thing comes from. Now, if you take a look at that, first off, even that on its face doesn't make any sense for exactly the same reason Ratu is scratching his head going, wait, what? Three base pairs? But then to just take a look at the empiric evidence. Take a look at, in the trials, the women who became pregnant after they'd become vaccinated, perfectly healthy children. Um, what we're seeing, we are not seeing any difference in miscarriage rates between those who are vaccinated and those who are not. People are having perfectly normal, healthy children at the same rate they would have had they not been vaccinated. Correct. Provided, of course, they didn't get COVID because right. we do see problems with pregnancy and COVID. Exactly. So the other thing, so there's no additional harm in pregnancy getting vaccinated. And we know there is additional harm in not getting vaccinated if you get COVID. But there's actually benefit to the child because you're creating antibodies by the vaccine process and you can pass those antibodies on to your baby. Now your infant who doesn't, isn't gonna be able to get vaccinated for many years actually has protection that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Right. So yeah, this, is, this turns out to be not really anything there. So if you look at say the body of experts that are you know, the experts, the world's experts in pregnancy, the American College of Patricia Ghana just ACOG, they're absolutely clear about it, get vaccinated. Right. And there is data that shows that getting COVID while pregnant leads to preterm labor. 
Yeah, there's there's really good data on that. Uh, you know, COVID and pregnancy doesn't really don't do well together. You know, and and I can totally uh, empathize with this concern about the vaccine and pregnancy. You know, early on in the, in the pandemic, you know, I had a, I had a good friend that asked me that. You know, I'm pregnant. Should I get the vaccine? And I didn't really know how to answer her. Um, but now we really do have good data that shows that it's safe. Uh, there is a study in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, June 17th. Uh, it shows, uh, it's, it's called Preliminary Findings of mRNA COVID-19 Vaccine Safety in Pregnant Persons. And I highlighted in pregnant persons because that, that's what I was looking for because the original clinical trials, you know, cr you know, did not have pregnant people in it. Yeah. Uh, but now we do actually have quite a bit of data that says that it is safe in pregnancy. Uh, and so, you know, I, I do, I don't have as many reservations about that. I don't have any reservations about it in, in pregnancy. But I can totally relate to the, to the question and, and the concern. But yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a scary thing. My <laughs> sister was still breastfeeding when this first came out and had a big question about whether she should get vaccinated. And I said, well, hold that thought. Let me see what I can find out. Mm -hmm. um, and fortunately, there had been one small study that looked at this and looked like it was favorable. Now I'm just checking my reference manager and I have nine references just in my bibliography, which let's face it, is all about ketamine, droperidol and airways. <laughs> nine of them about the safety of the vaccine with pregnancy. Right. Yeah. And the other, this isn't my specialty. And there are nine. Yeah. The other question that the, the so the other question that that I get is fertility for men and, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, my response is, well, no, there's data that shows that the, it's a penis and larger and that, <laughs> oh wait, this is supposed to be a family show. I think um, you're confusing oh, two of oh, Pfizer's oh, products. Two oh my God. Products. That's right. Oh, but, um, I love you by the way, but, <laughs> but the re but this is another one so like men and fertility and again there's zero data that shows and and when we go back when we go back to this is where the whole mrna research 20 years really is important which is that that in the animal studies there was no problem with with the fertility and then the small and the and the human trials that uh, that were done uh, also showed that it that there were no issues with fertility and it comes back down to the point that that hayden made was that this stuff is in your bloodstream uh, sorry it's not in your bloodstream is in your body for really just a few hours to days there was one study that i read when we were first uh, oh the dog's coming in outstanding uh there was one study that i read where they looked at like where does the where does the vaccine go, and they radio tagged the vaccine. And this was an mRNA study; it wasn't uh, specific to COVID, but they tagged the vax the payload, um, and um, and then with a radioactive marker, and then they injected it uh, and um, saw where it went. And it went to it stayed basically in the injection site, and then made a little bit of a journey where it was taken into the lymph, the lymph nodes that were closest to the injection site. And that's really important because 
getting to those lymph nodes is what really amps up what's called the cellular response. And so that's, I think, part of the reason why this vaccine is so effective is because it not only encourages autoantibody uh, creation, that it really ramps up that what's called cellular response from the T cells. But there was no vaccine that moved to the to the genitals. There was no play. So the, there's no way that it could cause a fertility problem for males. And then again, in all in our current surveillance, there's no issue. And in the previous studies, there was there's no issue. And as far as infertility in females, I looked up that as well. And I didn't I didn't find any evidence uh, to support the claim that it causes infertility in females. Um, I did find a lot of studies and, and there's a lot of uh, databases uh, that these women that are trying to get pregnant will use in order to kind of track their responses with getting the vaccine or not. Uh, and um, part of it was in that study that I had cited earlier and another is in a kind of a review article of sorts um, that was in, uh, you know, in a, that I was reading as well. And both of these studies uh, didn't show any changes of infertility. They didn't show any changes of menstrual cycles beyond what was normal for the time. A lot of these um, women actually endorsed menstrual cycle changes during the pandemic. And the, what, I was, what I was reading was that it was more likely a stress response than it was a stress, stress response to the pandemic than it was a function of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, because there, the rates were very similar, like kind of like the placebo effect that you see in clinical trials is kind of what was reported in these um, you know, big survey databases. And um, you know, that's actually a well-known phenomenon in gynecology is that when, you are, when, when a woman is stressed, it can actually change her cycles. And so the, the, what they were saying was, is it wasn't really a function of the vaccine and more of the pandemic and social situation as a whole. Cool. Perfect. All right, listen, we have done, um, I think a great job of sort of getting to the point of what, what we wanted to do. I mean, it's been an hour and 40 minutes, but <laughs> I think we've covered the things that we've wanted to cover. And really at the end of the day, we just wanted to give people an opportunity to watch this video that maybe we're sort of on the fence, um, share it with family members that were maybe on the fence and wanted some kind of unbiased just information, right? Um, uh, but there's been a few questions in the chat that I'm that I that are not really purview to this particular broadcast that we're doing, but I, I guess in all sort of, you know, transparency, and here we are, I guess we can go ahead and talk about those. And I know um, Ritu had already responded to one particular question there, but uh, Dr. Jarvis, did you want to, did you want to talk about ivermectin for a second? Sure. So there have been, I, I think the main reason I want to address this, I think Ritu um, really summarized what I think is unfortunate, which is that there just doesn't seem to be a benefit to ivermectin. Um, and I think all of us would agree that that's unfortunate. We would all like there to be something that we could use to treat this. Um, I don't particularly like looking at really sick people and telling them there's not much I can do. Um, that's not what I got into medicine for. So I think that this is a good opportunity 
to discuss why we should be skeptical about the first small observational things we hear about any drug. So drug X comes out for condition Y, heart attack or seizures or anything. And the initial data that we see on it is based on observational trials, meaning they're not randomized. We just look at a group and say, show me those people who got this drug and those people who did not get this drug. And you look at that with maybe 100 patients and you say, oh, my, look at this. The ones who got the drug did better. Maybe if you're being honest, the best you can say is there is an association between better outcome and this drug that is hypothesis generating. It doesn't mean that that drug caused the better outcome. This is just a signal. It's a hint that we need to go out and we need to do better studies. We need to do randomized controlled studies. One of the big problems with observational studies is that you get these confounding variables. Maybe there's a reason some people got ivermectin and some didn't. The only way to control for that is a randomized trial. So we had some initial signals that ivermectin would be helpful. And those initial signals came from the same place that the initial signals of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin came from, which is a test tube. So in vitro, there is at massive, massive levels, way higher than anything that would be toxic in humans, there is some activity against viral replication. So there's a reason we might think that, hey, maybe this would work in humans. Let's look into it. Initial observational trials, particularly in outpatients, where, as Ritu points out, all of them, well, I shouldn't say all of them, the vast majority are going to do better no matter what you do. You give some ivermectin, and sure enough, they do well. So our hint here is, well, wow, it must be the ivermectin. So the correct thing to do is randomized control trials. And unfortunately, there have now been randomized control trials of azithromycin, of hydroxychloroquine, of chloroquine, of ivermectin, and as a matter of fact, of all combinations of those things. They've been high-dose, low-dose, pre-hospitalization, post-hospitalization, and unfortunately, there's just no difference. And that's the really frustrating thing. But just because there is early data that doesn't pan out doesn't mean we're suppressing evidence. It doesn't mean it's a function of big pharma. By the way, big pharma doesn't make money on ivermectin. Um, it's, you know, so you're not really, there's no, there's no conspiracy here. This is just unfortunately how science works. You get an additional hint that there's a benefit, and then you look at it in more detail with better studies. And unfortunately, very frequently, that benefit goes away. There is one study that's been going around that looks at a systematic, meta, uh, systematic review and meta-analysis of studies with um, ivermectin. And it's a legitimate researcher. There's no, I mean, I don't think we need to say anything bad about this researcher, but a systematic review and meta-analysis is only as good as the component trials that go into it. I, I, I think I've read this. I think I've read this. The benefit well. to ivermectin was um, heavily dependent on one study. This was an Egyptian study of ivermectin. And unfortunately, after it got published, they found it, that there were huge parts of it that had been plagiarized and they couldn't account for where the data came from. So there were some significant um, 
significant problems with it, significant enough that the journal withdrew that article. The author of the systematic review and meta-analysis said, well, since the biggest part of my trial just got withdrawn, I have to recalculate this without that trial. And when he did it, no difference. Yeah. I think the other piece too, is there was another trial that on, on paper on face looks really cool. Um, and it was published as a preprint. Um, and so we all get PDFs sent to us by well-meaning folks who say, um, who say, well, this just got published, but it was a preprint. And a preprint is science by um, press release. Uh, it, it is basically uh, they have decided. And, and I will say that I see people who are um, arguing like for vaccination who will refer to preprint prints. And, and I really, I, I, I really don't think that's a good plan. And so, so when you are, when somebody sends you a thing, you need to figure out, you need to look at the, at the PDF and see, you know, when was it submitted to the journal and when was it approved? Because I, I think, I think Hayden's point that when he reads um, a an article from a journal and a specialty that he's not familiar with, it's very hard to take, to, to make the right conclusion. Well, the whole point of peer review and peer review has problems. I get that. Yes, Jeff, I have been your reviewer number three in the past. Um, but <laughs> but I knew that had your handwriting all over it. Your review is not perfect. Um, I think I have reviewed one of your, but anyway, peer, peer, review is, peer review is not perfect by any stretch, but it gives the work to people who are experts. And, and the other thing is that most... It's not only experts both in the content area, but also in the statistical methods that are used. And um, those experts have to basically say, yeah, this passes muster. Um, and they can look at the data and say, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. This is garbage. Where did they get the data? We need more information. And so when you get, when something gets published as a peer, as a preprint, it's had no peer review, it's went through no process. It's like Jeff and I sitting down tomorrow and writing a paper, which Jeff has mostly been writing the last three days, last three months for us anyway. Um, where all my hair went. Yeah. Well, and I put some comments in, but it's, and then instead of submitting it, like we're planning to do this week, it's just putting it out there and saying, this is done. It's, it's now the gospel. It's now the truth. So when somebody sends you a preprint, I would just be very skeptical. Um, and I, again, there are preprints that argue for vaccination that I, that I put aside and like, uh, you know, not unless it's either in, 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 unless it's in the peer reviewed literature, which the CDC's MMWR is peer reviewed. Um, uh, I don't think you, I don't, I just don't think it should be included in the argument. So the basically what we're looking, what we're talking about here, and I think this is the the source that everybody sees this, is the medrivx.org. It's a site, it's a server for these pre-release, pre-review papers. I had never heard of this thing before the pandemic. Early on in a pandemic, if you think back to what life was like when you were trying to figure out how to treat patients, Early, early on in this, nobody had any idea 
um, all we knew that were, this is dangerous, lots of people are dying, we're not sure what to do. I think you can make a case for something like this early on in a pandemic, but you have to be wary about it and you have to understand you are suspending the rules of science. And those rules have evolved over hundreds of years for a very good reason. We are far enough along in this pandemic that I'm ready for the rules of science to account again. We need to flip that switch. And I think we have gotten to the point where let's just wait the time that it takes to get through peer review. Um, I can tell you, having gone through peer review as an author and as a reviewer, as can the other folks on this panel here, how much a paper changes for the better with peer review. Um, not only does it make it easier to read and the logical flow is better, I've had my papers where peer reviewers have pointed out some methodological issues that I just didn't think of. I went back and changed the methodological, the methodological issues, and sometimes that can dramatically change the results. So peer review, it's not perfect. It's kind of like democracy. Democracy is the worst form of government, you know, except for all the others. Um, peer review is not perfect, but it is definitely better than everything else out there. All right, well, listen, we're, we're an hour and 53 minutes. We are not going in one stitch, one stitch, I tell you, past two hours on this. So this is what I want. This is how I want to get this closed out. First thing I want to, I want to address a couple of comments. Uh, YouTube is lighting up, by the way. A lot of comments on YouTube. Um, oh, good. So, so thanks for the folks joining us on YouTube. Um, a lot of questions being asked. They must have joined late because we answered a, a lot of those already. So I encourage you guys to go back, watch the beginning, and, uh, and, and sort of take a peek at some of that. And maybe once the video is finished, I can go in there, edit it, put some timestamps in so you can sort of jump to those different places. Great. Uh, so that's the first thing. Second thing, uh, a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, are asking about, hey, can you talk about the legal side of things? Can employers mandate? Can states mandate? Believe me, we're going to. And actually, the Standard of Care podcast Proud member of the Flight Bridge Ed podcast family, by the Proud way. Proud member of the Flight Bridge Proud, Proud member and a and fire doctor. Production, by the way, I just want to throw that out there. Um, they, this, like, they covered that. Go back. There's like nine episodes. It was like episode three or four. Like, we, they've been on this since the get-go. But we are planning on having both um, uh, Nick and Sam, and we'll have her too, and Jeff back on here. And we're going to do another podcast really on the legal aspects of this, it turns out it's mostly been decided like a hundred years ago. But nonetheless, let's talk about this. We'll we'll we'll, we'll address. We're not going to let something like that keep us from a podcast. Yeah, I know exactly, but it's good. We're going to talk about it, and most importantly, really, we want to take your guys' questions on that stuff. So stay tuned. Probably within the next week to ten days, two weeks tops, we'll get another live episode out here with uh, with Sam and Nick and the rest of the gang here, and we'll jump on there. But what I want to do is I want to take this last five minutes. And I want to go around to each of these uh, physicians and I want you guys just to have uh, a minute or two and just um, final thoughts. So we'll start with uh, our guest, Hayden, Dr. Hayden Smith. Sure. Um, you know, I think my final thoughts are that, um, well, first off, it's been a pleasure to be here and, and with you guys again. I definitely enjoy uh, doing these podcasts with you guys. Um, I think my takeaway from everything is that 
you know, working with these guys, seeing how hard they've been working on answering all of your questions, you know, I think, and, you know, from everyone that I've talked to, physicians really care. They're not trying to convince you to do something for their own benefit. They're not trying to convince you because some drug company told you to do something. You know, a lot of the things that your physician is going to tell you uh, is really is at, is for your benefit. And, you know, I think I've seen that in a lot of the things that, you know, Jeff and Ritu have done uh, in studying these questions, um, you know, and, and myself, as I've tried to help others work through COVID questions and things, you know, the, the hope is that we can all come to this decision together. And I don't want to convince you or force you to do something. I want you to understand it so that you can make a, a well-informed decision. And the hope mm -hmm. is that we've been able to do that through this podcast. Awesome. Thanks. So thank you. Appreciate you jumping on here again. We love you. You're, 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 you're one of us now. Anytime you want to come on, you're just going to, we just, just come on. I love Great. it. Thanks so much for that. I appreciate that. Dr. Jarvis. So I wanted to, just as an indication, I think all of us, as Hayden was saying, have really tried to approach this question of whether to get vaccinated or not from an evidentiary basis. What does the evidence show? And I think when it comes to whether, at least for me, I have been convinced, I think the evidence is overwhelming that vaccines are safe and they're effective. But there are still, at least to me, some questions that are outstanding. Um, one of my medics got COVID and he actually got fairly sick with COVID. And this was long before vaccines were available. And his big question is, well, if I've already had COVID, do I need to get vaccinated? And I'm not sure that I really have a great answer for that question yet. Um, I think the evidence on this is mixed and it's not nearly as strong as the evidence for whether to get vaccinated or not. Early on, there was some evidence um, that you don't, if you get COVID, the amount of antibodies that you create are not as high as the amount of antibodies that you create with vaccination. And that's where the recommendation for vaccination after having COVID comes from. I think particularly in the realm of Delta, um, we have seen there was just a recent paper, again, pre-publication with all the, the worries that come from that, that suggest that perhaps the ability to fight off serious infection and illness is greater with um, what's called natural immunity, having had the virus, than it is from having two full doses of um, mRNA vaccine. So that's one pre-peer-reviewed trial, but having read it over, the methods seem reasonable. Um, I'd really like to see that duplicated um, and see it on larger scales. Um, but one thing, let's just assume that that is true. I think you have to ask yourself, if that's true, what do you do with it? Do you go out and have an inoculation party where you just have everybody try to get COVID? No, because that's a really, really bad idea. People do die from COVID. We've seen millions of people now die from COVID. This is not just the flu. This is a significant issue. It's like playing Russian roulette. Five times out of six that you pull that trigger, you're going to be fine. So you could say, well, you know, the risk of blowing my brains out playing Russian roulette is grossly overrated. Five times out of six, I do just fine. Yeah, but that sixth one's a bitch. 
And I think that's what happens with COVID. Even if it's a small percentage of people with COVID who die, there are, hell, I don't know, 8 billion people on the planet now. Um, 1% of them is an awful lot of people. So it's important that the risk, if you just give yourself COVID to prevent getting COVID, it doesn't really make sense because the disease can be really nasty. The final thing they did in this pre-release, pre-review paper is they actually compared those who had been vaccinated but never had COVID, those who had COVID but had not been vaccinated, and those who had had COVID and been vaccinated, and those who had COVID and been vaccinated had really low levels of reinfection and much higher uh, rates of antibodies. So where we might end up with this, and again, I don't know, and I think it's important that we say we don't know this yet, is that if you get COVID, maybe you only need one dose rather than two. Um, but I, I do want to point that out. I wanted to bring it up because I know the question is out there and I wanted to bring it up because when we say we are answering our questions based on what the available evidence is, if the evidence doesn't give us a good answer, I think we're going to be honest with you and tell, tell you that we don't have a good answer. Well, thank you for that. We'll learn more, right? All right, Dr. Sani, sir. <laughs> um, uh, Ted Lasso says, be, be curious, not judgmental. Um, really wanted to try to answer your questions today. Um, you know, we're, we're all very tired. We all work very hard. And for fun, we come on and do this stuff. But I worked four days out of the last five in the emergency department. I saw about, I admitted a number of patients with COVID. Um, a large percentage of my patients, um, uh, a larger percentage than normal were COVID patients. And almost all, but not all, were not vaccinated. Um, uh, you know, I... I don't, I don't have any agenda other than um, you, your health, that health of my patients and my ability to go to football games. And all those things are impacted by, by whether or not our community gets vaccinated. Um, there's a lot of false information out there. And sometimes that false information can be can sound scientific, or and the person can sound knowledgeable. And so, I, in some ways, I am uh, another one of those guys, if you will. Um, but but I do my motivation is pretty clear. Um, uh, I really just want this thing to end, um, and. Uh, I can tell you again that Dr. Jarvis and I in particular, I've known Jeff for a while, um, Hayden also, we're skeptical in general when we read research, read things. And um, the best way to not die for COVID, from COVID is to not get it. The best way, the most reasonable way to not get COVID is to get vaccinated. It's not 100%. 
but no one here wants to lock themselves in an isolation chamber because that's the only way to guarantee you won't get it. The next way is to get your shot. Um, I believe that it's the right thing to do. I believe that as a healthcare worker, it's absolutely my responsibility to get it. Um, and I'm, for any of you who are, work with me, um, I'm happy to answer any other questions that you might have um, on this. Um, but please do your part to end this 19-month pandemic that we're in, 20-month awesome. pandemic. Well, I don't have much else to follow that up with. I think that's pretty good. Um, other than to say, if there's if there's anything, you know, if one person goes and gets vaccinated after watching tonight, I think that makes us excited and we appreciate that. Um, but we want you to do it for the right reasons, right? So anyway, so let me get us out of here. On behalf of Dr. Hayden Smith, Dr. Jeff Jarvis, Dr. Ratusani, Mike Verkest, you've been watching uh, and listening to a live episode of the Second Shift podcast, as well as the EMS Lighthouse Project podcast. We are a proud member of the Flybridge Podcast Network. And Ritu, take us away. And a Fire Dog production. Second Shift is a production of Flight Bridge Ed, LLC at flightbridgeed.com.